Father, we ask now that as we come to the word that the Holy Spirit has inspired, that you would give us wisdom to understand it, uh, that you would give us greater confidence in you and your steadfastness and your immovability. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can grab a seat. So do me a courtesy, if you've got your Bible, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, I'm just going to let you know I'm tempted every single week to say 2 Corinthians. So just know that I've resisted it this long. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're in verses 11 through to 15. Uh, our text for this evening begins in this way. It says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others. Now, there's the super common saying that if you've grown up in church or really heard, I'd say more than a handful of preachers, you've heard it before. That whenever you come to a passage of scripture and you see the word therefore, it is meant to prompt a question in you. You are meant to ask, what is the therefore there for? I saw a few people who knew that. Da-da-ga, it's so clever and so catchy. Uh, but the reality is that when Paul begins verse 11 with the word therefore, uh, he means for you to understand something about everything that he's about to say. Uh, namely, that everything that is coming to us is written in light of something that he has previously said. Uh, it's almost as if uh, Paul is looking forward as he's driving, but he is constantly looking back in his rear view mirror. And so if we are to understand everything that Paul is about to say in verses 11 to 15, then we need to recognize, for lack of a better term, what the therefore is there for. What is it that he is saying all of this in reference to? Uh, and if you weren't with us last week, or maybe you just don't remember, in verse 10, Paul introduces this astounding idea. In verse 10, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This phrase, the judgment seat of Christ in the Greek, it is the bema seat of Christ. And for the Corinthians, when they heard Paul say this, or I guess when they read Paul making this statement, it was a reference to something they really, really would have understood well. So I, I did my undergrad at USF, I majored in religion, it was a trip, uh, but most of my classes were in Cooper Hall. So if you've been to USF, you know dear old Cooper Hall. Uh, and it's this really strange old building that's right next to a subway so that half of the classrooms smell like Italian herbs and cheese, <laughs> and then the other, the other half smell like mold and death. And so it's this great dichotomy that happens in Cooper Hall. Uh, but out front of Cooper Hall is this space. It's this patch of grass. And when I was there, it might have changed since then, but when I was there, the grass was like all trampled down and didn't, I mean, it looked like they weren't taking care of it. And there was this rope fence around it. And it was called the free speech lawn. Now, there was no sign that said, this is the free speech lawn. That was just what everybody called it. And so I don't know if it was officially designated as such or if it just kind of became that over time. I have no idea. But I do know that once people crossed that little rope fence and stood on the free speech lawn, they said all kinds of crazy things and no one ever stopped them. So in practice, it was the free speech lawn. You had um, people who were protesting whatever. Uh, you had people who were street preachers. You had brimstone and hellfire people. You had all sorts of people that would just step over that rope and they were on the free speech lawn and they could say whatever they wanted. And so if I were to write to the Christians at USF and reference the free speech lawn, they would go, oh, in front of Cooper Hall smells like Italian herbs and cheese. And sometimes 
inappropriate conversations coming from the free speech lawn. It was just something that was obvious to them, or it would be obvious to them, and maybe even to you if it's still there. So when Paul says the Bema seat of Christ, this idea of the Bema seat, the Corinthians know exactly what he's talking about. Because in the ancient world, we found this throughout a lot of the cities in the Roman Empire, there were what really just looked like steps made of stone, and they were called Bema seats or judgment seats. And leaders in the ancient world, judicial leaders, would sit down on these Bema seats in their cities, and they would pronounce judgment on people who had committed crimes or were brought before the courts. Paul had actually been brought before the Bema seat in Corinth. You can actually Google Corinth Bema seat, and you can see a picture of the seat that Paul was brought in front of. Uh, Paul was accused of breaking the law, and so he was brought in front of a leader in Corinth, and the leader sits down, I believe his name was Gaius, and decides whether Paul is guilty or innocent. They're just everywhere. It's the seat from which judgment was pronounced. There's a little bit of indication in Matthew that Pontius Pilate also had a Bema seat. And Pilate sat down at his seat and judged Christ, or attempted to judge Christ, when the Jewish leaders brought him before them, brought him before Pilate. And I think all of us, at least I hope all of us, have this sense in which we really like to see the tables turned when injustice takes place. I hope I'm not the only person who spent hours on World Star Hip Hop looking up bully beatdown videos. Um, I love to see the videos where the nerdy, scrawny kid who's getting picked on turns the tables on the buff jock kid who's been picking on him. I love that. That makes me just warm and excited inside. Um, because we like to see justice happen when injustice is taking place. We like to see the tables turned when the strong are persecuting the weak. And ultimately, what Paul is pointing to in this Bema Seat of Christ is this grand cosmic reversal. Consider this. Pontius Pilate judges the Son of God from his Bema Seat. The world attempts to pass judgment on Jesus. But what Paul says is there is a day coming where Jesus will judge the world. And from Christ's Bema seat, a perfect judgment, a righteous judgment, a true and just judgment will be pronounced. So what appeared weak 2,000 years ago in front of Pilate's Bema seat, uh, he is going to be strong and judge the world that thought it could judge him. This is what is in Paul's rear view mirror, this judgment seat of Christ. And it's something that Christians, according to Paul, will stand in front of. Uh, not that we're going to plead our case for salvation. Jesus, please let me in. I did lots of good things. Uh, but instead, when we sit before the judgment seat of Christ as Christians, we are to give an account to the Lord of our salvation for what we did with the salvation he purchased with his blood. Paul has this in his rear view, and it's this that causes him to write verse 11, this judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So this idea of standing before Christ or uh, Christ sitting before us in judgment produces a fear of the Lord, and this fear of the Lord causes Paul to seek to persuade others, to be evangelistic, to try and convince people that the gospel is true. Now you hear... I'm sure this phrase, fear of the Lord, and it might make you a little bit uncomfortable. I think it might make all of us a little bit uncomfortable. I know when I was in high school, 
I was in love with the idea of church not being formal or stuffy or sort of suit and tie-ish. So like I love the fact that I came to a church where I could wear flip-flops and my like vote for Pedro shirt and, and just look like I didn't actually care about life and still come to church because I grew up in a church before I came to Bay Life that was super, super formal, button-down, suit and tie. Uh, and sort of extending my love for informalities in high school, I loved the idea that we could pray to God and we didn't have to use these and thous and all these formal uh, flowery words that in high school I couldn't even spell. And probably still can't spell. Autocorrect has ruined my grammatical abilities. And so there was, one, there was one Sunday where as a volunteer, I was like 14 or 15, I'm leading worship in the middle school service. Um, not because I was like a great singer or anything, but because I was willing to do it and I could kind of play guitar. And if everybody else sang loud enough, you couldn't tell that I couldn't sing. It's awesome. And, you know, I'm in my like super informal Travis stage, which I've since kind of grown out of a little bit. And, and I, it was time for me to lead prayer at the end of the songs I was singing. And so I start on my really informal prayer. Hey God, what's up? It's Travis. And in my head, I'm going, this is so cool. <laughs> God, just thanks so much for like this awesome time of worship that we could sing these great songs and you know, thanks for all that you do and bringing us here today, later. And then I just take my guitar off and put it down and walk off the stage. Okay, you're cringing, I'm cringing remembering it. Here, two things happened when I ended my prayer in later. One, nobody knew I was done. So everybody kept their heads bowed until like a leader or two kind of looks up and looks around and they're like, oh, all right, I guess he's done. Brian, come on up and, and teach. Uh, and two, some of those leaders came and talked to me afterwards, not in like a mean or condescending or rude sort of way. Uh, but they just said, hey, man, you know, I, I love that you, you just have this warmth in the way that you pray. That's a really nice way of couching it. <laughs> you know, I just love the fact that, you know, you just seem to, to love the Lord so much and be so comfortable in talking with him. But, um, you know, Jesus isn't just our friend. He is, but he's also our Lord. And don't you think that, that our prayer should kind of reflect that? It's, it's not that there shouldn't be this warmness or this, this familiarity. It's not that we shouldn't have these conversant prayers with Christ, but, but shouldn't we not lose sight of the fact that he's still our king? And in my head, I was like, oh, you fuddy-duddy stick-in-the-mud people with your button-down shirts. And, and I thought I knew everything at 14. Uh, but in retrospect, I hear that and I go, actually, yeah. 14-year-old Travis didn't quite get this. Paul does get this. As he considers the judgment seat of Christ, it produces this fear and reverence before the Lord, which I think is due to him. It is right for him. It is right that we should have this sense of awe before God. And hey, maybe you're not a Christian, or, or maybe you are a Christian, and you still hear this idea of the fear of the Lord, and you go, well, that sounds like God is, is sort of strong-arming strong arming me into doing what he wants. He's intimidating me into uh, doing what Paul says, which is to persuade others to be evangelistic. And um, maybe if I could unpack this idea of the fear of the, Lord, of the Lord a little bit more. So Hebrews tells us that our God is a consuming fire. Uh, that's not a literal statement. It's using something in the created world to describe the creator, that our God is uh, fire-like in his characteristics. And if we consider the nature of fire for a minute, we actually have a lot to be thankful for as far as how fire has shaped our world. We cooked our food with it. We lit our cities by it. Uh, when you were 
climbing up the misty mountain cold. Uh, you kept warm by the fire. Maybe not you, but the Fellowship of the Ring did. <laughs> so we've kept warm. We've lit our homes. We've cooked our food. Uh, I was in Uganda this summer. You dispose of your trash through fire, which may or may not follow any sort of like global warming regulations, but they just burn their trash and get rid of it. So we have a lot to be thankful for, but I can tell you this, that if I flick a cigarette lighter in front of my cat and he sees that flame, he is running. And it's not just because my cat is skittish. As much as we have to be thankful for in fire, there is a natural fear that we have towards it as well. And I think the fear is right and good and proper because fire can burn you. Um, bright enough fire can cause you to be blinded and unable to see. See the sun, for example. Uh, and really, this fire that you can use to burn your trash and also a hole in the ozone layer uh, can also burn down your home and all of your memories and everything that you ever loved. And if you were to take each of the attributes of fire that causes us to be afraid, the, the pain that comes from its heat, uh, the damage that can be done by its brightness, its destructive power, if you were to take each of those attributes away, well, we might not be afraid of fire anymore, but fire also couldn't help us at all anymore either. You take the heat away, you can't cook your food, you can't keep warm. You take the light away, you can't light anything. You take its destructive power away and you're not gonna burn your trash in Gulu. And I would just like to say, maybe, maybe, this, this might speak to the fear of the Lord. If you were to take away all of the things about God that frighten us, and rightfully so, his justice, his holiness, his power, his righteousness, his judgment, if you were to take every single one of those things away from God, you might not be afraid of him anymore, but he also couldn't save you anymore. Every single thing that rightly produces fear in us related to God are all of the things necessary for the Lord our God to be our savior. And so I think this fear of the Lord is right and it is good and it is what spurs Paul on to persuade others, to proclaim to others and to convince others that the gospel is true. And he goes on and he says, but we, what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Now, if you've been with us for a good majority of this series, then you know that a huge part of what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians is he's answering people who are criticizing him. Uh, there's people in Corinth saying, Paul's not a real apostle, we're real apostles, you should listen to us. And here are all the reasons why Paul is not a real apostle. And most of the reasons given are relatively superficial. Uh, Paul's not a good speaker. Paul's really eloquent in his writing, but not in his talking. He's unimpressive looking. Uh, he's short and stubby. <coughs> uh, he doesn't do enough miracles. Uh, and on and on and on it goes as they criticize Paul. And so Paul's concern here is that the Corinthians don't think that Paul has written this letter just to talk about how awesome he is. Uh, that, that's kind of what he's getting at here. He says, we're not commending ourselves to you again. We're not writing this to convince you of how great we are. We're writing this so that when people criticize us, you have something to answer them with. Uh, rather than just sitting there and going, well, well okay, sure. And one of the things that these people are boasting about and in turn criticizing Paul for is that they are boasting about their outward appearance. The, the Greek here literally means they are boasting in their faces. 
They're boasting in their eloquence of speech. They're boasting in all the miracles they do. They're boasting in all the nice things they have. They're boasting in the fact that bad things don't happen to them like they happened to Paul. But see, for Paul, those are not the sort of things that we should be proud of or boast in. It's not our speaking abilities. It's not our handsomeness. It's not how well we dress and whether we keep current on the trends. What Paul wants the Corinthians to be proud of in him and the people who shared the gospel with them is their character. These people can boast about their eloquence, but we want you to boast about our character. And I would like to believe that if I were in Corinth, I wouldn't be part of the problem. But time after time after time, and again, things happen in my life that just sort of convince me I would have been part of the problem in Corinth. So point in case, uh, several months ago, a friend of mine recommended a church to me and said, hey, you should check this out on a Sunday morning. Maybe you can get some ideas. Maybe you can think about ways to, to learn from their model of doing church. And so uh, I checked the church out. I thought it was awesome. I thought it was great and wonderful. And then she asked me what I thought. And I said, it was awesome. Love the service. Pastor's a great preacher. Did a great job with the text. And she said, awesome. That's cool. I'm glad you liked it. And over the course of a few months, uh, the conversation would come up again and again. Well, so what did you, you remember you checked out that church. What did you think of it? And I would always go back to great speaker, great preacher, awesome. And there came a point where she, uh, she wasn't trying to be condemning. I don't even know that she was trying to correct me. Uh, but she said, yeah, yeah, he is. He's a great preacher. But the thing that I love more than the fact that he's a good preacher is that he's a godly man. The thing that I love more than the fact that he's really good at explaining scripture in a way that I can understand is the fact that he has integrity. Because for her, that was first. And his preaching ability was second. How different our churches would look if we first boasted in the integrity of our leadership and second in their rhetorical abilities. How different our churches would look if when the hiring committee started looking for guys to fill the pulpit, they first looked for people who were men and women of integrity. And then they asked the question, also, can they preach good? Paul's first concern is that the Corinthians know that whether or not Paul looks good or is eloquent, he and the people who served with him, they're men of integrity. And then he makes this statement in verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now, that just seems to come out of nowhere. Uh, and if you have a different translation, it might say, if we are uh, out of our minds, it is for God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for you. And so you may hear that and go, that's weird. What is that? Where did that come from? Remember again the nature of some of the criticisms that are being levied at Paul because Paul's really addressing his critics here. Uh, one of the criticisms that's launched at Paul is that he doesn't demonstrate enough miracles and uh, charismatic gifts and things like that. So people are probably criticizing him because he doesn't speak in tongues enough, because he doesn't have enough visions, because he doesn't utter enough prophecies, because he doesn't dream enough dreams, because he doesn't on and on and on and on. It's a criticism of the lack of supernatural things surrounding Paul. He's just too plain and boring. And I, I guess if we're going to open this can of worms, and it is a can of worms, hear me say that. If we're going to open this can of worms, if we're going to talk about things like speaking in tongues and these, these gifts uh, that Paul refers to as being out of the mind or in the mind, uh, I should probably just tell you where I stand on this. There are people who think that tongues and prophecy and dreams and visions and healings and all that thing, that 
they would say that that stopped with the death of the last apostle. There are people who take that perspective. I'm not one of them. I do think that these gifts have continued. But I don't think the primary focus of the church gathered is those things. The primary focus of the church gathered is preaching and teaching and repentance and discipleship. And so what Paul says, he describes it as being out of our mind, having visions, speaking in tongues, uttering prophecy, or being in our mind. He says, if we are beside ourselves, if we are out of our mind, it is for God. That's almost as if to say, if I speak in tongues, if I have visions, if I dream dreams, if I have prophecies, that's between me and God. But if we are in our minds, if we are in our right mind, if I am speaking clearly, if I am teaching scripture, if I am discipling you, if I am calling you to repentance, that's for you. That's a gift to you. Paul's actually already talked about this with the Corinthians earlier in uh, 1 Corinthians. He, he has this lengthy treatment on the topic of speaking in tongues, and he says, I speak in tongues more than all of you. I do it more than any of you. But then he follows that up with saying, well, let me just quote, quote it for you. It's 18 and 19 of 1 Corinthians 14, I believe. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And, and here's, here's the, the, the practical outworking of this. And I'll, I'll just tell you, my, my burden is the pastor of this ministry. Man, I long for us to be deeply engaged in our worship. I long for the spirit to move. I long for people to be um, affected emotionally as we sing of the goodness and the glory and the greatness of God. There, there is not anything in me that does not desire that. But if I have to choose between people crying during worship or each and every person in this room saying Jesus is Lord and living the rest of their life in light of that truth, I will choose the second every day. Because I have known people who have spoken in tongues and cried during every worship service they've ever sat through, and they're not Christians anymore. And I have known people who have sat with their hands in their pockets, never closed their eyes, never raised their hands, and they died faithful, honoring the Lord. So Paul says, if, if we are out of our minds, if these, these gifts, these supernatural experiences, if these happen, that's between us and God. But if I'm preaching, and I'm discipling, and I'm teaching, and I'm doing the ordinary, boring things that God has always used to grow his people, that is a gift to you. And then he concludes our passage for this evening by saying, the love of Christ controls us because we have not concluded, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He begins verse 14 by saying, the love of Christ controls us. Two things that we need to make clear here. I guess this is four, since I have both hands. Two things we need to make clear. Uh, one, first and foremost, Paul is not talking about our love for Christ. Paul is talking about Christ's love for us that compels us. And in the Greek here, this term compels, it's not like you would sit and watch a documentary about Amanda Knox on Netflix and go, oh, I find this compelling. Uh, the, the Greek word, which I did find compelling, I watched it on Netflix. Um, the Greek word here for compel is, is almost like pushing someone down a slide. It's a, we have been driven by the love of Christ. 
The love that Christ has shown us is driving us to live faithfully, to proclaim the gospel. This is not a casual, oh, that's compelling. It is a forcing of us that the love of Christ is so tremendous that it pushes Paul to action, to move, to think, to act, to be different. The love of Christ compels us. Well, what is the love of Christ? How does Paul even know that Christ loves him? He says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The scripture that Beth read for us this evening is another letter of Paul's. God demonstrated his love for us in this way, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. How does Paul know that Christ loves us? Because Christ died for us. We've concluded this, that one has died for all. And what does that conclusion lead him to? It compels him to act. Paul will later go on and say we love him because he first loved us. So it's not just that Christ loves us, it's that we love him out of the overflow of his love for us. And that is what drives us to move. That is what drives us to act. But notice how the tables have turned from verse 10. Christ sits on the Bema seat as judge, even as he has endured the judgment that was rightly ours. This glorious paradox of the gospel, that the judge has subjected himself to judgment on the behalf of his people, that compels him to move and live and be different. In... C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. I think we see this, this fear of the Lord that moves us and this love of Christ that moves us. We see this perfectly married together. Again and again and again. Uh, this character, Aslan, who's a lion who's meant to represent Jesus, uh, he is obviously sort of the hero of the whole story. Uh, but he always does things that are surprising and sometimes frightening. He's a lion. Lions are spooky. And again and again and again, the, the other characters are surprised by it, and somebody will make this statement, Aslan is not a tame lion. And uh, let me just hold out this, this truth to you about Christ that I think Lewis grasps and Paul grasps. Paul is fueled by the fear of the Lord because Jesus is not a tame Lord. But at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia film, the first one, uh, somebody makes the statement, Aslan is not a tame lion. And then another person responds, no, but he is good. And this fear of the Lord and this goodness and love of Christ are married together and they compel us to be different, to love the world and to love the people of God. Man, I pray that you would know the fear of the Lord, the Lord, but you would also know the profound love of Christ and it would spur you on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that we would all together conclude this, that one has died for all. That we would be compelled by the love of Christ demonstrated in his sacrifice on the cross. And God, that would cause us to live differently 
to love differently, to forgive differently, to treat people differently as we will discuss in the coming weeks. And Lord, I pray now that these would not just be uh, truths that we've written down in our notebooks or truths that we've checked off in our mind, Lord, that these would be truths that by your spirit we walk in, that we would fear you, that we would uh, recognize your love for us and that we would love you in return because you have loved us first. Lord, we ask now that you would lead us to your table as we take communion together. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.